840 here. It's been 12 days since I last did a, a live show. It's a little under the weather there over the weekends. It's a Friday about 11 a.m. Suddenly, like, the world just started spinning. Uh, I was incredibly dizzy. Had to lie down for about 20 minutes. Okay, under the weather for four days, but I'm back reading an article here in The Atlantic by Ben Rhodes, foreign policy advisor to Barack Obama. He writes about the double life of John Le Carre. As the spy who came in from the court turns 60, a reassessment of John Le Carre and the forces that shaped the writer and the man by Ben Rhodes. Okay, here's just a little bit that got my attention. So it says, in 2017, I finished eight years working at the center of American national security policy in the White House, exhausted by lack of sleep, haunted by world crises unresolved. Bro, if you're haunted by world crises unresolved, that's not because of world crises. That's because you have an unrealistic understanding of your own capabilities, right? There are always going to be world crises that are unresolved, all right? If you're haunted and can't sleep by by world crises that are unresolved, that has nothing to do with the world and everything to do with you. Disoriented at moving from the inside to the outside, so he moved from the Barack Obama administration outside and rattled by Donald Trump's presidency. Bro, if you are rattled by Donald Trump's presidency, if you are rattled by Barack Obama's presidency, if you are rattled by Joe Biden's presidency has nothing to do with Barack Obama, Donald Trump, or Joe Biden. Almost nothing meaningfully changed for a regular person just leading a regular life for your real life, right? Almost nothing changed depending on who was president. So if this rattles you, that is all about you and not about who's president of the United States. So Ben Rhodes says, I sought out reasons to travel. Yeah, if you can just do a geographic, right? If you can just you know, switch your location, then, then that'll bring about some kind of internal spiritual change, right? That's nonsense, right? This guy, right, is exhausted by lack of sleep. Why is he exhausted by lack of sleep? Because he's completely out of touch with reality. He's haunted by world crises unresolved. I mean, what a grandiose, you know, narcissistic, delusional uh, thing to say. Guys, I... I was just feeling dizzy on Friday and uh, spent Saturday, Sunday, you know, in bed because, guys, I was just haunted by world crises unresolved. And then the last time I was down for the count, I was I was haunted by spiritual crises unresolved. And then the time before that, I was down for the count. Bro, I was haunted by European crises unresolved. Then before that, bro, I, I got sick because I was... I was haunted by the, the Ukraine war because I am such, you know, <laughs> this is like the humble brag, right? Someone who, who can't sleep and, and feels haunted because the world does not conform to his wishes. Right? In a bookshop in Hong Kong, I bought a set of John Le Carre's first three novels. Near the beginning of the first Call for the Dead, he introduces us to his finest creation, right? George Smiley in the British Secret Services. And this is how he introduces George Smiley. He learned what it was never to sleep, never to relax, to feel at any time of day or night the restless beating of his own heart, to know the extremes of solitude and self-pity, the sudden unreasoning desire for a woman, for drink, for exercise, for any drug to take away the tension of his life. Okay, the tension of his life, 
and the tyranny of his desires, right, and the restless beating of his own heart is not because he's in his majesty's secret service. It's because there's something wrong with George Smiley. He doesn't have a normal relationship with himself, and he doesn't have a normal relationship with other people, and he wants to externalize what's an internal spiritual crisis. If you're not at ease with yourself, it sounds so much cooler to say, oh, I'm I'm haunted by the state of the world. I'm I'm haunted by my profession. I'm haunted by my workplace. I'm haunted by what's going on in Ukraine or Japan or Israel or Jordan or Iraq or Iran. But there's nothing you can do about any of those places. Ben Rhodes says, I couldn't stop reading because Ben Rhodes is just made of such fine stuff, right? So much finer than you. He was a man working things out through his writing, trying to make sense of forces that could be so crushing. Look, if you're out of touch with reality, if you're out of touch with what is in your control and what is outside of control, all right, then you can have all sorts of problems, right? And it's going to make you less effective at dealing with the world outside if you're completely delusional about what's under your control and what's not under your control. Brendan says, being out of touch with reality makes him blend in with the majority. Luke's attire shows you how serial he is. Serious? Well, crises are ongoing and never-ending. Yeah. Uh, what did Jesus say? The, the poor will always be with you. So here is a key foundational part of, of my worldview. This is where I think this live stream differs from pretty much every other distant right podcast and live stream of which I'm aware. And it's just 30 seconds from a Doc Snipes video, right? You'd say, what the hell does this have to do with politics and culture and religion and the state of the world and world crises, the Ukraine crisis, codependency, addiction, and insecure attachment? What is the connection? Doc Looking Snipes. Problem solving. And they tend to focus, and this is what our brain does when we're in a negative mood state, we tend to focus on the threats in the environment and in Okay, so almost every distant right podcast and live stream of which I'm aware comes from this negative mood state that then overly focuses on threats in the environment and interprets things in a negative light so that they then see the glass as half empty. Like pretty much everyone I talk to in the distant right is doing podcasts and live streams. They would inevitably interpret every news event as it's absolutely hopeless like the game is rigged everything is against us right this is what what dominates the the distant right perspective and also the distant left you know antifa perspective as well with problem solving and they tend to focus and this is what our brain does when we're in a negative mood state we tend to focus on the threats in the environment right so we tend not to see the world as it is. We tend to see the world as we are. If you're in a negative mood, you will put, you know, undue emphasis on threats in the environment. You'll interpret everything in a negative light to fit what's going on with you. When I was a child, about age six or seven, there were two occasions when I lit fires. That's because I wanted to create a conflagration outside of me that match the conflagration going on inside of me. And interpret things in a negative light. So we see the glass as half empty. If somebody does something, we see the, or we expect the um, most nefarious interpretation of it as opposed to the most benign. 
Right. So this is what I encountered throughout the, the distant right in particular, that is always going to the most nefarious interpretation of what's going on. It's the elites who are trying to, you know, wipe us out. They're trying to kill us. They're trying to slaughter us. They're trying to genocide us. They're trying to you know, destroy us. They're trying to wipe out our people. All right. The thing I noticed about uh, live streaming with people on distant right is that uh, they almost never use incompetence as an explanation for what's going on. They almost always use nefarious forces. You know, the forces of darkness are triumphing over the forces of light. So I know myself. I know how frequently incompetent I am. You know how frequently bumbling I am. Right? I know how deeply flawed I am. And so I then take, you know, what's going on inside of me and I expect other people to be similarly flawed, similarly bumbling, similarly incompetent at times. I don't always reach as, as my first explanation. Oh, it's because it's because these people are nefarious, because they are from the forces of darkness. It's because they're from the forces of evil. They're just trying to, you know, wipe out the light. Right. That's you know, that's not my my go-to explanation for how the world works and interpersonally when people are in codependent relationships there's almost always a power struggle between them and the person that they are rescuing but it also impairs other relationships because their friends their family may be able to see how unhealthy this relationship is but the person who is who's codependent is so afraid to let it go doesn't trust these other people so they end up pushing others away because they're trying to uh, maintain this relationship as well as maintain the facade that everything's perfect right and this could be a relationship with live streams this could be a relationship with dissident politics this could be a relationship you know with an extreme devotion to what's going on in uh, politics and with you know uh, immigration right people become you know so obsessed with live streams and and podcasts and distant political movements and they destroy their real life and they push away anyone who points out hey you know there's something wrong with you right your, your life is going way off course right you're losing touch with reality but uh, people get into this like codependent relationship with with reality right with with uh, a devotion to you know extremism right let's get some common sense here in ohio so you have to wonder what happened to the trillion dollar infrastructure bill the one that joe biden can't stop bragging about the infrastructure bill that was actually an equity bill the one that put solar panels on government buildings what about our infrastructure what about the airplanes? Why do they come within 100 feet of each other? No one in the Biden administration appears to care. And unless they start to care, people are going to die for real. So the thing you want to watch is not the periphery, but the core. That is the critical industries. Aviation, transportation more broadly, energy, and medicine. And there's a problem in the medical profession. For some reason, medical schools and hospitals have become convinced that the appearance of your doctor is the most important thing. You can judge a book by its cover. And CNN, of course, is pushing it hard. Watch.
Right now, fewer than 6% of doctors in the U.S. identify as black or African-American. That's despite the fact that the community makes up 12% of the country's total population, and that's raising concerns about the impact on public health. Research shows that when we have a more diverse physician workforce, there's more understanding and more trust between the patient and the doctor. If the doctor has an understanding of the patient's cultural experiences, cultural background, lived experiences, especially when it comes to racism or discrimination or other aspects of their life, that can help with that physician-patient a relationship. It's super simple. If there was ever a place where we need a pure meritocracy, the most qualified people get the jobs, it's in medicine. Most doctors believe that. Very few are willing to say it. Dr. Marilyn Singleton is one of them. She's got a piece in the Washington Post called, I'm a black physician and I'm appalled by mandated implicit bias training. And we are happy to have her join us tonight, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Doctor, thank you so much for coming on. Why, you've practiced medicine for a thank, long time. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, well, we're, we're delighted to have you. What have you noticed that has changed in your profession in medicine recently, and why are you concerned about it? Well, I'm concerned, one, I grew up in a time when there was segregation, and we moved from black people having to go to black universities to where it was completely open, and I was able to go to top-tier universities where my parents didn't necessarily do that. And then when... I went to medical school, diversity meant groups of different people all over the country, different backgrounds and whatnot. All we wanted to do was get good grades and be the best doctor that we possibly could and take the best care of patients. Suddenly we fast forward now and we don't even hear about getting good grades. All we hear about is, oh, a black patient should have a black doctor. Well, that is so wrong. A black patient should have a good doctor, and that's what all patients want, and certainly black patients don't want that. And you believe me, if you get rolled into an emergency room, you don't want a patient having to look up at that doctor sideways and think, hmm, is this one of those evil white devils, or is this a good doctor who's going to take care of my stab wound to the abdomen? And this is so wrong. And it's being pushed on people. And I don't like the demonization of my colleagues that I've worked with for years, saved patients' lives with, had them come to me for advice on how to do something. And suddenly, I'm not supposed to trust them. They're not supposed to trust me. Am I suddenly a stupid black person? It's, it's completely flipped on its head. There was a time when black people were considered not up to the, to the task, to the job, and couldn't be professionals, couldn't be doctors. And we are, we're smart, we're just like anybody else. And suddenly, white doctors are the ones that have the evil aura around them. And we expect black patients to then want to trust that doctor. And it's hokum that black patient needs a black doctor. Number one, it could never happen. There aren't enough doctors. How could you match these people up? What happens when you go into an emergency? And I honestly, as an anesthesiologist, I've done plenty of emergencies. I've been a doctor for, oh, I hate to say, 50 years now. And patients look at you and <laughs> years ago, all they wondered, are you old enough to know how to do this? 
and they wondered about your competence. And this is wrong, having so much focus on race and bringing back the kind of focus that we fought for so many years to be gone, to look at people as individuals and their talents, their personality, their compassion, and they're wiping it away. And it's just wrong. It's criminal. Why are you one of such a tiny minority of practicing physicians willing to say that? Well, I think it's like so many times, and I'm sure you've been in these meetings where everybody's thinking the same thing, but nobody wants to say it out loud. And, with, and part of it is what's happening in medicine all over, that we now have private practice, only 47% of physicians. And so you're looking at 53% of physicians are employed or they work for one of these big health systems. They're afraid. They're afraid to lose their jobs. And it's kind of hard to blame them. When you're in private practice and you're taking care of your own patients for your own self, you know, you can say what you want. And your patients, when they love you, they love you. And they don't care what color you are. They're just That's glad right. that you give them good treatment. Bless you for saying that. I mean, it, it sounds obvious, but when you're one of the only people willing to say it, we're, we're really grateful for your willingness to do that. Dr. Marilyn Singleton, appreciate it. Thank you. So if you want to control a country and its people, obviously you destroy their history so they don't know what happened before. And then the future is yours. So now the woke mob is in the Pentagon and they've decided to desecrate Arlington National Cemetery. Not so fast, woke mob at the Pentagon. We've got details next. Okay, you're probably wondering what the heck is going on with Andy Worski and uh, PPP and uh, Nick Fuentes. Fuck, Mary kill. Pansu politically provoked Nick Fuentes. Well, kill would be Nick because I'm not gay. Um, uh, Disavow. I would say Mary politically provoked and fuck Pansu. Yeah, I'm going to go with fuck Nick Fuentes. I want to fuck his little twink ass. Whoa, disavow. Uh, I'm going to kill Pantsu, and I'm going to marry Politically Provoked. Disavow. That's a good one, actually. I like that. That was actually pretty good. Yeah, I, I want to. I just want to rail Nick's ass. And I'm not going to vote. At least has milkers, you know, and she's somewhat decent looking. So, you know, whatever. No tolerance. Fuck, marry, kill. Fuck Fuentes, his sample twink ass. It's true. Be tight. You just bend him right over, and you just fucking rail him. Whoa. Holy shit. This I can make that boy prostate orgasm so quick, Andy. You don't oh. even know. See the tears of pleasure and pain. Yeah, everyone. I'm sure it wouldn't be the first time for Nicholas. Everyone, I want, bottom. I'm going to do a little fucking thought experiment here. Okay, everyone, uh, Ashton, you don't have to do it because it's about you. Everyone just shut your okay. eyes. All right. Now imagine PPP naked. Okay. Oh, yeah, no. I got it. Stop. Then I'll imagine Nick it. naked. No. Now imagine Nick bending over and no. spreading his twink out. No. Okay? No. Now PPP. No. No. Stop. Stop. That's that's degenerate. That's filthy. Man. Let's go to the New York Times. Right. Headline. Nobody wants to be the world's villain. 
inside the Louisville Police Department where officers are reckoning with what it means to be a cop in a city that doesn't trust them. Oh, I'm, I'm just curious. Is it true that Louisville just doesn't trust cops? Or is it true that uh, there's a segment of Louisville that, that doesn't trust cops? So I'm going to wager that there, there are quite, you know, quite a few people in Louisville who do basically trust cops. And I'm going to wager that there is a relatively tiny minority or a minority of the population that thinks the cops are the bad guys. Right? So it's not like, oh, there's just this undifferentiated Louisville mass that, that doesn't tra trust cops. That's just what I'm thinking. Nobody wants to be the world's villain, Humphrey said. When you signed up to do good and people are telling you what you're actually doing is harmful, it does cause you to do some soul searching. Oh, so really? Is that is that how most is that how most Americans feel that uh, you know the cops are really the bad guys? I don't think that uh, the cops are really the bad guys. I don't think most people think that way. I think there is a hysterical anti-cop, you know, feeling dominating our elites, dominating the news media, dominating academia. Like criminologists, it seems like 99%, right, it would be any less than 97% of criminologists are on the left. But uh, I don't think there's this widespread loathing of the cops. I think there's a widespread loathing of the cops among our dominant elite. And probably... You should do some soul searching. In recent years, look if if bad people, dumb people, stupid people, uh, people out of touch with reality, right, going on rants against you, against the cops, you don't have to do soul searching. You recognize their stupidity and evil, and uh, you know misplaced resentment and anger in the world. Even as police misconduct has been exposed across the country. Even as police misconduct has been exposed across the country. So I've heard about George Floyd. Now I've heard about all these people who have been victims of cops. What about the dozens, hundreds of cops who get murdered, right, for trying to do their job, right? How come I don't know any of their names? I know the names of horrible people like George Floyd, and uh, that that guy who who died when he was arrested for like the twelfth time selling cigarettes on the street in, in New York, right? I, I know, I know these the names of these horrible people, but I don't know the names of heroic cops who get murdered doing their job. Behavior of Louisville officers has stood out. In the behavior of Louisville officers, guys, it's, it's stood out because it's just so bad, but. Uh, what what is it about Louisville? Like, is there anything about Louisville that might make this city particularly difficult to to police? I, I'm just wondering: Are there, say, significant parts of the the population that uh, commit inordinate amounts of crime? I wager to you that police racism is not among the top fifty problems facing. This country, I would wager to you that uh, police misconduct 
in general is not among the, the top 30 problems uh, facing this country. So I wonder what the, the demographic of Louisville is. At 24% under the age of 18. Right. Uh, so apparently 2007, the city was 75% uh, white. And must be all those horrible white people just out there committing horrible crimes. My God. In 2017, it was revealed that two officers for years had been molesting teenagers in the department's Youth Explorer program. So who proportionally per capita molests you know, more kids? Uh, drug dealers, plumbers, rabbis, priests, cops, right? I, I'm quite skeptical of any claims that uh, cops are molesting significantly more kids per capita than other professions. I haven't seen any evidence of that. In 2018 and 2019, detectives on a violent crime unit bought drinks from gas stations, announced on the police radio that someone was thirsty, and hurled the beverages at their targets. Does and this just happened out of nowhere for absolutely no reason, right? It isn't because, you know, they were dealing with, you know, particularly horrible people and to become morally desensitized from trying to police people who are evil, right? No, this this happened for no good reason. I, I doubt it. Like, where's the context? How have these, these cops been treated? ...of these attacks were recorded to be shared with their squad. Then there were the many wrongful traffic stops, including one that circulated widely in 2018, during which officers pulled over a black former homecoming king, an honors graduate. So we've had this explosion in traffic deaths and pedestrian deaths, and violent crime in this country since the death of George Floyd, when our elites and our media right, turned against policing. So we overwhelmingly have a problem in this country of inadequate policing, not enough policing, not enough traffic stops. And guess what? When you arrest people for breaking the law, those arrest statistics are not going to break down exactly evenly by groups, because some groups... Right, break the law a lot more flagrantly and dangerously and violently than other groups. Men will break the law more dangerously and violently than women. Young people will break the law more dangerously and violently than older people. Right? Some groups commit disproportionate amounts of crime, including murder. So if you are going to enforce any kind of standards, it's always going to fall disproportionately on some groups who are not, uh, are not behaving in a law-abiding manner at the exact same percentage as other groups. And handcuffed him while a drug dog sniffed his mother's Dodge Charger. And this just came out of nowhere, all right? Uh, there's just absolutely no reason for police to pull this guy over. It's not like, let's say, Group A commits disproportionate amounts of crime and disproportionately disrespects cops. And therefore, you're a member of Group A, and then cops you know, react to you in a suspicious and negative fashion. That's what inevitably happens. If your group commits a ton of hijackings, all right, even though 99.99% of your group has absolutely nothing to do with hijackings, your group is going to be widely stigmatized. If your group, say, commits 10 times the amount of murder as another group, people will look at you with 10 times more fear and loathing. They would be rational. 
to look at you if you were 10 times more likely to commit murder. They'd be rational to avoid you and to look at you with fear and loathing and to pull you over for perhaps uh, carrying an unlicensed firearm. By the time officers slammed a battering ram into Brianna Taylor's door on March 13th, 2020, the city... And she was just at home studying the Bible, right? It wasn't like uh, she'd shacked up with a drug dealer, right? It wasn't anything to do with her hanging out with really bad people. City's black community had long been dealing with a majority white police force that was... Yeah, something like just... Uh, I mean, the, the percentage of, of black cops compared to the, the general community is a difference between like 24% of this community is black and only 17% of the cops are black. But we know from statistics that uh, black cops are more likely to abuse black people than white cops. So really, if you think uh, increasing the black percentage of the police force from 17 to 24%, to exactly match the surrounding population, that's going to make a significant difference. On what basis would you say that? Half-heartedly trained, poorly supervised, and laxly disciplined. Oh, I'm curious. Are they treated with respect? Are they paid well? Or do you pay them like crap, treat them like crap, and as a result, only get, you know, crap performance? Humphrey sometimes shook his head at the shameful litany. Is every police department this screwed up, he wondered? No, it's not. Guess what? When, when you have cops who treat you with respect, right? right? They're coming from populations that treat the cops with respect. If you have a general population that uh, treats the cops badly, then the cops are going to treat you badly, right? Cops, in large part, reflect you know, the district that they're in. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Here is the main thing you need to know about Joe Biden. He is 82, 80 years old, rather. He was born in 1942 in the first half of the last century. The year Biden was born, only 36% of American households had a telephone. Nearly half of them did not have indoor plumbing. Joe Biden turned 80 last November. This fall, he will be 81. If Biden were to serve a second full term as president, he would be 86 years old, in other words, four years from 90. These are not trivial facts about Joe Biden. These are the central facts of Joe Biden's life. Joe Biden's age defines him and all of us. That's true for every person. Age is just a number, you will hear people say, but they are lying to themselves. Age is more than a number. Age is an expression of the core biological reality of human existence, which is that at some point it comes to a close. Age is the way that we chart our progression from birth to death as we pass from this world as billions before us have and are replaced by others. That used to be called the cycle of life. No one has ever changed it. No one ever will. So our choice is between accepting a reality we cannot alter or denying that reality even exists. The Democratic Party has chosen the latter. Tomorrow is March 1st. That means a year from today we'll be in the middle of presidential primary season. Joe Biden has given every indication that he plans to participate in that and that his party is firmly behind him. The DNC has already changed the primary calendar to make South Carolina, which is a machine state where the outcome can easily be scripted, the very first contest. And that was not an accident. It was done. It was changed to help Joe Biden win. Biden says he's strongly considering running again. Biden's wife, of course, says she very much hopes he will run. 
And most tellingly of all, no mainstream Democrat has announced a run against him. So as of tonight, Joe Biden is in the race for the Democratic nomination. And as of tonight, he will get the nomination. And that's just amazing if you think about it. Joe Biden would be 82 years old on Inauguration Day. That is eight years older than the average life expectancy for men in this country. So virtually everyone in his high school class will be gone by then. But Joe Biden will be just beginning his second term as president of the United States. Would that be healthy for America? Would it be healthy for Joe Biden? Of course not. It's awful. 82-year-old men should not be running countries. They're not strong enough mentally or physically. Everybody knows that, very much including any 82-year-old man you ask. The people around Joe Biden certainly know that. How could they not know that? They watch him, and you do too. Here's Joe Biden in Warsaw, Poland, just last week. The questions we faced were as simple as they were profound. Would we respond, or would we look the other way? Would we be strong, or would we be weak? Would we, we, would we, would we the, all of our allies, would be united or divided? So we play clips like that a million times for you over the past few years. We could play a million more because Joe Biden talks like that every day. At this point, it's how he talks. Joe Biden is losing his ability to speak. That's not a secret. It's not something you learn from our confidential sources and are bringing to you for the first time tonight exclusively. That is obvious to the entire world. And you'll probably sound like that, too, if you make it to Joe Biden's age. We will also. It's not weird. It's natural. It's not an attack on Joe Biden. Hardly. It's an observation. But because it's natural, we have been commanded to ignore it. Don Lamont got suspended from his show at CNN recently for suggesting that a presidential candidate in her 50s was, quote, past her prime. And that's odd, really. As a factual matter, what Don Lamont said is true. People in their 50s are literally, certainly physically, past their prime. That's a fact. Take it from someone who's 53. So why was that such a controversial point? Of all the demented things that Don Lamont has said over the years, noticing somebody's age is what blows up his career? Yes. Because that simple, commonplace observation, people weaken with age, points to a power that will forever remain beyond human authority, which is the power to control time. No matter how rich we are, we cannot prevent ourselves from getting older. We can buy Botox and hair plugs and facelifts. Joe Biden has bought all of that. But in the end, we degrade anyway because we are not God. Accepting this fact that we are not God, working within the preordained limits of nature, is the key to balance and happiness in this human life. Ignoring that fact leads to insanity, or in the case of modern America, it leads to the trans agenda and climate theology. Okay, let's get back to this New York Times article on the crisis in policing. Sometimes he would read about a bad officer someplace else like the one in California who exposed himself during a victim interview, and think with relief, at least that wasn't us. Okay, when you're going to talk about how bad cops are, what about giving some context? What about talking about the people that they have to interact with? I'm going to suspect that if you're interacting with respectful, law-abiding citizens who are appropriately you know, grateful for your work as a cop, that uh, you're much more likely to treat other people in a respectful, law-abiding way. If they're being honest, Humphrey says, most cops and most people have done or said things they regret, including him. 
During the unrest of 2020, a member of the National Guard fatally shot a beloved Louisville barbecue stand owner during a clash as officers tried to clear a parking lot. Yeah, and so I I don't know much about this incident, but it sounds like it's appropriate to castigate the police for uh, shooting an innocent man. But what about all the criminals, all the people around them creating a, a tense, dangerous situation that then precipitated this horrible behavior, right? This New York Times article is looking at, you know, bad behavior by cops in the abstract. But bad behavior by cops, bad behavior by me, bad behavior by you does not just occur in in a vacuum, right? When I'm running late, I'm much more likely to behave badly. If I'm not at ease with myself, I'm much more likely to behave badly. If I am responding to incentives that incentivize me to behave badly, I'm more likely to behave badly than if I have incentives that reward me for behaving righteously, right? If I have good friends, right, good connections with my family, right, I'm much more likely to behave well than if I'm primarily hanging out with reprobates, right? My behavior, your behavior, cop behavior never occurs in a vacuum. It's profoundly affected by the people around us. Right. You want to know who you are, look at your five closest friends. That's going to be a reflection of who you are. That's who I am. So the people you hang around, they reflect you. And if you put people under unnecessary pressure and tension and you verbally abuse them, such people are far more likely to lash out in nasty ways. When Humphrey arrived, not yet fully aware of what happened, he asked other National Guard soldiers how they were doing, then added... I'm glad we could get you onto a little something. The comment recorded on his body camera made the news. Okay, he's in a in a horrible situation. Like he's trying to provide some support and some connection with other people, right? You don't have to sculpt every word you say to reflect you know, everything that's going on around you, right? You're you're allowed to say you know, lame or even inappropriate or you know, careless things to try to create some kind of bond with your in-group. Humphrey told me that it was a clumsy attempt to break the tension of a stressful situation, but that it came off as callous. Fixing a police department, Humphrey says, is like trying to fix a lumbering machine of countless parts. One of the biggest challenges is persuading police officers, headstrong, critical, and often beleaguered, to be enthusiastic about another makeover. All right. Anyone, you put them in a beleaguered situation, they're going to behave badly. You put them in a situation where the news media has turned against them and portrayed them as the bad guys, right? they are going to respond by withdrawing. Right? You take society's elites and you have them fund and support terrorist movements like Black Lives Matter, all right? you're going to strongly incentivize cops to stand back and to not be nearly as enthusiastic about their job. We have to reward people who are doing good such as most cops, and we have to punish people who are doing horrible things like the criminals who are destroying our country and the elites who are funding the Fortune 500 companies that are funding the destruction of this company, country through terrorist groups like Black Lives Matter. Police officers hate two things, Humphrey told me. Change and the way things are. But change... Oh, as opposed to everyone else. Right. Most people don't like change, 
and most people aren't particularly thrilled about the way things are. So this, once again, places police right dab smack in the middle of the human condition. This, this reaction by police has absolutely nothing to do with being police. It's a human reaction. Is coming to this agency of 1,000 officers. In 2021... We've had a massive change with regard to policing over the past three years, and it's overwhelmingly been bad. Right? Police have been strongly incentivized by Fortune 500 companies, by our elites, by the news media, by the Democratic Party to stop doing their job. And so as they've withdrawn from enforcing the law, we have had this widespread outbreak of criminal violence, traffic deaths, pedestrian deaths, and a degradation of the quality of life in our country. Thank you, Black Lives Matter, and thank you to the elites who support this terrorist organization. And the Department of Justice resurrected its pattern or practice investigations after a period of dormancy under former President Donald Trump, probing Minneapolis, where Officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd, and Louisville, where officers shot and killed Breonna Taylor. After nearly two years of investigating, the Department of Justice is expected to release a scathing report on the Louisville Department, cataloging use of force issues, biased policing practices, and sexual misconduct by officers. Yeah, if only we just had more equity. I think if we just, if we just had more equity, I think things would, would go a lot better. A little bit more equity, man, that would really sort things out. Why do we need merit? Yeah, why do we need merit among, say, pilots, air traffic controllers, doctors, police, accountants, lawyers, social workers? Like, what, what's the big deal about merit? Why don't we just decide things on the basis of equity, diversity, inclusion? Right? Maybe, maybe if we just had less merit in America, we'd be better off. Commanders anticipate that the process will result in a federal consent decree that... Yeah, don't you want to fly the equitable skies? I know I do. ...would mandate widespread changes to policing practices in the coming years. The profession, Humphrey and other Louisville officers agree, is in the midst of a historic identity crisis. Yeah, most people have an identity crisis when they're roundly abused and beleaguered, and they increasingly get the sense that their enemies are far more powerful and far more funded than their supporters. And that's basically the situation that police in America have right now. A policing career used to offer good health insurance, a solid pension, and some degree of respect. Nearly all of those benefits have been eroded. Okay, so maybe we should reverse that. And we'll get better quality police. You, you get the police that you pay for, pay not just in terms of money, but in terms of respect and working conditions. Officers have come to question whether the long hours at relatively low pay, working a sometimes dangerous job that could at any moment thrust them onto the nightly news, 
is worth it? For many, the answer has been no. Yeah, people make decisions on the margins, right? Pay matters, benefits matter, but also respect, love, admiration. In Louisville, hundreds of officers have resigned or retired in recent years, leaving the force short by 300 people. The police department has had four leadership changes since mid-2020, swearing in the latest interim chief, Jackie Gwynne Villaroel, in January. Police recruiters, who used to draw hundreds of applicants for each academy class, have struggled to fill their funded 48 slots with qualified candidates. One recent class had only 15 students. In a 2021 survey, 75% of responding LMPD personnel said they would leave the force if they could. In the meantime, Louisville is experiencing record crime. Criminal homicides have increased. Louisville is experiencing record crime is not because of, primarily because of the poor quality of policing. What about the district attorney, right? What about three strikes, right? What about locking up bad people for a long time so that they can't hurt innocent people, right? Where are the incentives? The incentives are strong enough You'll reduce crime. You'll crush crime. We can live in a country that is safe, right? We just have to put away super predators, put them away for a long, long time. Drastically, from 89 in 2019 to 161 in 2020, the highest annual number in city history. The next year was even worse, with 177. In 2022, the total went down to 160, but by mid-February this year, there had already been 23 homicides on pace to be another. Okay, so we've changed our incentives. We've strongly incentivized the police to not do their jobs. And we have incentivized criminals to act like criminals. We have released thousands and thousands of criminals from prison under things like, uh, oh, we don't want them to get COVID or we need to reimagine law enforcement, reimagine policing. So we're, we've reduced the amount that we punish bad people and we have disincentivized good people from taking down bad people. What exactly do you expect to happen in this situation? Ismail year. Gun violence has risen sharply, disproportionately. Imp yeah, because democratic cities, all right, they don't want to put away Democratic voters who police, you know, catch with unlicensed firearms, right? That's what made New York City so safe, stop and frisk, right? If our major cities would return to stop and frisk policies, we would absolutely destroy the crime rate. But Democratic politicians in these leading Democrat-dominated cities don't want to take guns away from Democratic voters who are carrying them illegally. Acting black men. In the first few weeks of this year, preliminary data showed that 71% of victims involved in the city's non-fatal shootings were black. Yeah, and what percentage of the people carrying out these shootings were of the same group? Many of the several dozen current and former Louisville police officers I spoke with over the past 15 months said they have come around to the idea that years of institutional arrogance— Defensiveness and misguided policing strategies have caused a loss of public trust. Oh, what about the wider context, right? What about a community, right, that's committing 10, 20, 100 times the rate of shootings and violent crimes of other communities? 
How come that doesn't get any attention? Do you think that, uh, you know, one community committing a disproportionate amount of murder, do you think that reduces social cohesion? Do you think that uh, one community that uh, largely gets to avoid being arrested unless it feels like being arrested, do you think that tends to reduce social trust? Do you think that tends to, you know, damage communities? Do you think that discourages businesses from setting up? Where's the context? We had it coming, said Adam Sears, a former Army Staff Sergeant who joined the force in 2007 and now works in the department's training unit. People question our legitimacy, Sears continued. And you know what? I, I'm not aware of many people questioning the legitimacy of police. They're not wrong. Yeah, they, they are wrong. Right, Most police are legitimate. Anyone who argues that most police in America are illegitimate is highly detached from reality. I have conducted hundreds of interviews with police officers in my two decades as a reporter. Even as the ubiquity of cameras further exposed the failures of American policing. Oh, I don't know. Is it, is it uh, the ubiquity of, ubiquity of cameras that is exposing the failure of America's policing? I don't know. I, I'm seeing the ubiquity of cameras exposing astronomical crime rates committed by certain subsets of society. That's my primary takeaway. This is, this is ridiculous. Man, why don't we talk about happier things? We've got a new you know, F, F1 you know, racing season getting started in Bahrain. I, I still don't think that uh, Mercedes-Benz has its act together. It still looks like Red Bull is you know, poised to, to dominate again. Ferrari did uh, pretty well last year. Maybe they can push Red Bull. Uh, Netflix series season five is it Drive to Survive? I just you know watched that uh, over the weekend while I was sick. You know, absolutely great show. Then what an incredible Test cricket match, right? New Zealand, only the second time in Test cricket his international history, New Zealand defeats England by one run. Only the fourth time in Test cricket international history that a team that's been forced to follow on New Zealand ends up winning the Test cricket match. England continues to play the most exciting brand of cricket, right? Basball. I can't wait for the Ashes series, England versus Australia coming up. I mean, so many exciting things going on in the world. So depressing listening to this kind of analysis from the New York Times. Showing us the dying moments of Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, and other. Okay, how can we know the names of, you know, people like George Floyd and Eric Garner? but we don't know the names of hundreds of cops who get murdered doing their job. Since 2014, few of the officers I spoke with believed that the rising criticism of their profession was warranted. More yeah, because it occurs in a context where we have a lot of bad guys doing bad things, not getting punished for it. And we have our elites and major corporations increasingly lined up against police. Okay, Mary Eberstadt speaking here, how the West really lost God. Our subject tonight begins in understanding some statistics on belief and unbelief in the latest Australian census. These up-to-date numbers offer a window through which to view one of the greatest social experiments in history. That experiment has been ongoing in the Western tradition for centuries now. 
It is known to some as Matthew Arnold's low receding roar of religious faith. To others, it is the process of what is called secularization, or the ceding to non-religious authorities of territories once considered to be gods and only gods. And although this experiment matters rather obviously to religious believers, it also matters to Western citizens of all stripes as secularization affects us all. Now, the fact of Western religious decline is nothing new. Even so, judging by the 2021 Australian census, secularization is now galloping at a pace that even the most prescient observers might not have foreseen. In 2021, just under 44% of Australians called themselves Christian in the census. 50 years ago in 1971, fully 86% still called themselves Christians. Okay, this is a really superficial understanding of what's going on. Right In 1971, when 86% of Australians called themselves Christians, for more than 90% of them, it had very little meaning. Right, Whether or not someone calls himself a Christian or an observant Jew or a, a religious Muslim, that doesn't necessarily tell you that much because people aren't particularly accurate chroniclers of their own behavior. Right, uh, Most people who call themselves Christian, right, their lives are indistinguishable from the, the moral quality of their lives are indistinguishable from the moral quality of the lives around them by, by non-Christians. For most Christians, right, there are about 2 billion Christians in the world, right, that there's no significant moral difference in their behavior when compared to non-Christians because the overwhelming majority of Christians do not take Christianity seriously. The overwhelming majority of Muslims do not take Islam seriously. And the overwhelming majority of Jews do not take Judaism seriously. Why? Because we live in an increasingly economical, rationalized world robbed of mystery, robbed of the, the magical and the transcendent, where more and more explanations for what's going on around us come from science, and people overwhelmingly find scientific explanations for reality much more compelling than explanations offered by religion. So even people who call themselves Christian or even people who call themselves Orthodox Jews still lead lives substantially more secular than their peers were doing 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 years ago because the world around us is increasingly explained and understood through scientific, rational, neoliberal terms rather than traditional, magical, you know, transcendent terms. So from 86% in 1971 to just under 44% today, in effect, the percentage of the Australian population calling itself Christian has been cut in half in 50 years. In, in reality, the percentage of the population practicing Christianity probably hasn't changed much in the last 50 years. Right? It's just that it was expected 50 years ago in Australia that you would identify as Christian. Now it's no longer expected. But when it comes to how people lead their lives... Not much difference. And Australia is hardly alone. To the contrary, every society in the West exhibits the same growing indifference to organized religion. The okay, so just taking what, what people say as your barometer of whether or not people are religious is a really shoddy way to understand reality. But my father told me when I was a kid that religion in America is a mile wide and an inch thick. So in Australia today, if you go to church every week, your behavior is significantly different from the lives of the people around you. In America, if you go to church every week, in all likelihood, your behavior is not different from the lives of those around you. 
in Europe. You go to church every week. In all likelihood, your behavior is significantly, noticeably, appreciably different from the lives around you, but not in America, because when Europeans and Australians practice Christianity, go to church every week, it shows up in the overall quality of their life. In America, it generally does not, because for most Americans, uh, Christianity is a social club. It is not a moral discipline. In the United States, founded in large part by Protestant religious refugees, some 68% of the population, pardon me, 63% of the population now calls itself Christian. Forecasters expect that number to fall below 50% in a few more decades. In the U.S., as in Australia, the category none of the above is the fastest growing religious subset of all. And as for the United Kingdom, although the number of people calling themselves Christian still hovers around 50%, only 27% of Britons report that they actually believe in a god. So this list, too, could go on. But let us cut instead to the question. Okay, so let's imagine that uh, 87% of Britons said they believed in a god. That doesn't mean that God is real for them, right? Most people believe in things that make absolutely no difference in how they lead their lives. For most people in America, whether or not they believe in God makes no appreciable difference in the moral quality of their lives, right? Makes no appreciable difference in any quality to their lives, right? Saying you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, you believe in the profundity of the Torah, right? You believe in Buddhism, right? Doesn't doesn't, uh, intrinsically mean anything in how you lead your life, right? People have all sorts of crazy beliefs and yet can, can lead functioning, you know, efficient, effective lives. On the other hand, people can have you know, very efficient, rational beliefs and their lives can be an absolute mess. Question raised by this trend. What has happened here? How have societies that once feared God come to jeer God? So 50 years ago, Australia and, and England were not fearing God. Right? In 1890, in the United States, right, England, Australia, the, these countries were not fearing God. What's happened is that our lives have become more economic, more economical, more rational. We get more and more explanations from science. And so people used to fear God when they had less understanding of the world around them, when the world appeared to them you know, much more confusing. Now, when you have an earthquake, people understand it as the product of geographic forces of tectonic plates moving together. 2,000 years ago, people would be more likely to understand earthquakes as you know, some kind of expression of God. So as people have been able to you know, make more and more progress with scientific understandings of reality, with a more and more efficient economic system, then less and less of life is mysterious and magical. What is causing secularization? That question has been a preoccupation in some of my work for quite a while. What is causing secularization? What's happening on the margins is that the marginal benefit of belonging and practicing to organized religion has steadily dropped for most people. From a completely secular perspective, the primary purpose of religion is to bring comfort. Now people find that they more effectively, efficiently get comfort from music, from joining a soccer club, from psychotherapy, from yoga, from 
watching TV or movies or, you know, some sort of social action club or athletic club. So the things that religion provides, people have found that they can secure more effectively and efficiently outside of religion, right? That's why religion has declined. It's like, why did the Roman Empire decline? Because for various segments of the Roman Empire, they found that it was better for them, it was better for their, their group's well-being to not belong to the Roman Empire, that the benefits of belonging to the Roman Empire were, you know, by the, the benefits of not belonging to the Roman Empire. So if belonging to a church or a synagogue or a mosque, right, does great things for your life, you'll continue to belong. But if you are meeting your social needs, your comfort needs, your needs to belong more effectively through a yoga class or through music or through some kind of social action group or some kind of other endeavor, then you're going to steadily drop out of religion and take up other things. One result was a book published around 10 years ago called How the West Really Lost God. That book proposes an answer to the question about secularization that runs counter to the standard answers proposed so far. So tonight I would like to revisit its thesis with new evidence from Australia and elsewhere, and I would like to do so in three parts. The first part will explain the alternative theory of secularization delivered in How the West Really Lost God. The second part will examine three contributing forces to secularization that have become even more apparent since the book was published. In closing, we will consider some hopeful news. For if this analysis is correct, then despite the fact that much ails us in the West today, one big and perhaps unexpected finding looks to be right. The so-called inevitability thesis of religious decline is wrong. The idea that the epitaph has been written once and for all for religiosity in the West is wrong. And to believers looking for a way out of what looks like a permanent spiral of decline, the news that this is not permanent should be welcome and encouraging, as I hope to show further on. But first, back to that opening question, what causes secularization? This is, on the surface, a simple inquiry. It is only three words long, and it seems as if the towering apparatus of modern sociology with its metrics and spreadsheets, etc., ought to be able to answer it handily. And yet, the question is not simple at all. Evidence from all over shows that humanity, generally speaking, is theotropic. People across cultures lean toward God or gods. Humanity, across languages and time, bends towards some kind of belief in transcendence, some understanding that material reality is not the totality of reality. So what makes Western men and women so different from all those who came before? How the West Really Lost God approaches this question first by inspecting the prevailing theories of secularization and finding them insufficient. In other words, to understand secularization, we must first understand what has not happened here. So begin with what is probably the most common theory for why people stop going to church. Many observers, scholarly and non-scholarly alike, hold to one version or another of what might be called the dominant theory of religious decline. That is the idea that material prosperity drives out God. Many have come to believe that religion is Marx's famous opiate of the masses, a consolation prize. Yeah, no, that, does, that doesn't deal nearly as well as the reasons that I mentioned earlier. People have found more effective and efficient ways of meeting their needs compared to what they used to get in religion. That's the reason. The Latter-day Saints, the Mormons in America and around the world, exhibit the same pattern. Religious participation increases as income and education go up. So, as these show, prosperity and education do not necessarily drive out God. 
And I was interested to find on the way over here, reading a book by former Anglican Bishop Bruce Wilson, in the, uh, written in the 1980s, the same trend. He wrote, the more educated Australians had a higher rate of church attendance than the less educated. So if material prosperity does not drive people away from church, what does? How the West Really Lost God takes up several other theories and found these two limited in their explanatory power. Not untrue, but limited. Yes, as some have observed, the horrendous effects of the two world wars of the 20th century caused many around the world to question religion. Yeah, it wasn't World War I or World War II that uh, drove people away from God. It turns this notion upside down. It argues, and I believe proves, that something about living in families and participating in the signature events of families, birth, death, self-sacrifice among them, is a big part of what drives people to church. Look, people decide their sex lives and then they arrange their religiosity, right? If you want to be banging, if you want promiscuity, right, you're unlikely to be religious. If you want to raise a family, right, you want to have a monogamous marriage and devote yourself to your kids and to your family, then you're much more likely to be religious. In sum, the book argues, the social atomization and family implosion that followed the widespread adoption of the birth control pill have not been neutral forces for the churches. They have instead become the engines of secularization in our time. Right, but why is it that uh, you know fewer and fewer people want to devote themselves to having a family? Right, so I, I'm sure that uh, religiosity or the lack thereof does have an effect on family formation, but I don't think it's the major effect. Right? A major effect is that it's less and less affordable, particularly if you live in a city, to have kids. And there's more and more of a price for having kids right? living in an urban environment as opposed to when you're living on a farm. So I think there's much more explanation for the change in family formation with regard to technology urban living versus rural living when compared to religiosity. Religiosity, I think, is much more an effect than a cause of these changes. To put the point another way, one that should give heart, particularly to the believers among us, Western Christianity is in decline for reasons that have nothing whatever to do with the truth value of religious belief. It is not prosperity that makes God harder to see. It is not science. It's the increasing absence of familial figures who serve to sharpen the human vision of the divine. As a matter of anecdote, many people report that they are never closer to belief than when they're in a delivery room, for example, or sitting by a deathbed. History affirms that there is more than anecdote at work here. To study timelines, as you can see in How the West Really Lost God, is to see that religious vibrancy and family vibrancy go hand in hand. Conversely, so do religious decline and family decline. When you see one, expect the other. Conversely, not living in a family removes the strongest possible incentive that many people have for searching out a transcendental framework. How can we expect today's post-revolutionary young to take up church when many, on account of shrinking and absent families, will reach middle age without ever having held a baby or cared for an elderly relative? Okay, what was high school like back in 1990? I said it before and I'll say it again. Life was pretty bad. Stop, 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 I can't, trying to, trying to blast me with that copyright music. Yeah, people look different in the 1980s. They looked uh, a lot more mature, all right? They looked a lot healthier, right? Good times. 80s parties, man. That's what we need. We need to go back to the 1980s.
active or attended a funeral. The statistical record of the past decade appears to bear this thesis out. Given the continuing upheaval of the family and the move to postpone creating new families, how the West really lost God would have predicted more, none of the aboves among us, not fewer. And that's what we have. So now let's move on to part two of this discussion, considering certain forces propelling secularization that have come into sharper view. One highly significant social fact has gone almost entirely unnoticed. That is the relationship between the well-documented decline in Christian churchgoing, especially among millennials, and the simultaneous rise of a toxic public force on campuses across the Western world. This force is now known as cancel culture. I originally called it the new intolerance and cancel culture one. Here again, sociological attention to this aspect of secularization is overdue. This connection between the rise in unbelief among 20-somethings and the rise of punitive anti-Christian codes is obviously more than a coincidence, for it is well known and documented by social science that many students, not only in America but elsewhere, lose their religion in college. Now, an atheist or other non-believer might propose that this happens because college is where people learn uh, higher reasoning, and higher reasoning drives out the superstition of faith. That kind of answer would make perfect sense, except that it's refuted by the facts. As we have already seen, better educated people are actually more likely than those with less education to be found in church. The more, <clears throat> the more likely dynamic is that, thanks to cancel culture, the social and other costs of being a known believer on campus and elsewhere mount by the year, and students and other young people take note. Thus, intimidation in higher education, multiplied over many years and campuses and countries, is an unseen engine of secularization. The new intolerance gives intimidated people, even those raised in a faith, one more reason not to go to church. And from New York to Paris to Sydney to Buenos Aires, it is already doing that. It is worth wondering aloud about this at a time when the social costs for religious belief are rising, and when some students faced with hostility abandon their faith not because they've thought through all the problems of theology, but simply because they are scared. Okay, thought-provoking way to end tonight's show. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.